Today we're going to be talking about overcoming spiritual complacency. In the first half of the 17th century, the Puritans left England for New England. Most of them were members of the Church of England, having been baptized into the church when they were infants. And when their children came along, they had them baptized into the church when they were infants. The Puritans believed that godly parents would produce godly children. After having been baptized when they were infants, their children would naturally experience conversion. That was the hope. That was the expectation. But that's not what happened. In some cases, yes, but many of the children who were born to godly parents in New England never openly professed faith in Christ. They were never confirmed, which means they did not become full members of the church. So as you would expect, uh, church membership declined. Church leaders, uh, church leaders were scratching their heads over what to do about the situation. But what made the problem particularly pressing was that members of the second generation were now having children of their own. And a third generation was coming along. These would be the grandchildren of the founders of the New England colonies. The parents of the second generation, uh, even though they were not full members of the church, wanted their children to be baptized as infants. Uh, but that created a problem because the only children or infants who were eligible for baptism in the church at that time were the ones who were the offspring of communicant members, that is, full members, those who had made an open profession of faith in Christ. And so the second generation, even though they had been baptized and never really became part of the church, but still they wanted their infants to be baptized, um, but that wasn't something that uh, they were eligible for. So there had to be something that the church could do. And so they got together and they came up with something called the Halfway Covenant. The Halfway Covenant offered a compromise. Uh, and, and it was this, that all second generation parents who had been baptized but who had never been admitted to the church as full members by virtue of conversion, could present their children, uh, that is the third generation, for baptism. So in other words, the churches could extend to all second generation baptized parents sort of a halfway membership. Uh, this halfway covenant allowed those who were baptized as infants but were never converted to be granted partial membership in the church. Now, in those days, it's necessary for us to understand that church and state were tightly connected. I mean, very tightly connected. So tightly that you could not run for office or even vote for someone who was running for office unless you were a member of the church. You know, even in my generation, um, which 
I tend to think of myself as, you know, around 40 or so. I mean, that's what it'll look like, right? <laughs> but I've been around for a while, but, but, but nonetheless, uh, you had to be a member of the right church to become president of this country. You had to be Protestant. It wasn't until 1960 uh, that we had our first and only Roman Catholic president when JFK was elected. And uh, even closer to home, I'm told that some years back that if you wanted to be mayor of Charleston or be on the city council of Charleston, you had to be a member of the First Christian Church, which is what we used to be. Um, so it's important for us to see that in order you know, to be, uh, have a voice, have a leadership role in the larger community, you had to have some kind of connection to the church. And so they were trying to figure out a way that you could have the connection with the church without really professing faith in Christ. Uh, halfway covenant was really uh, just a half-hearted thing. You know, by the way, uh, Solomon started, who was Jonathan Edwards' grandfather. Jonathan Edwards, by the way, is the greatest theologian, even the greatest scholar that this country has ever produced. That's not just my opinion. This is what Encyclopedia Britannica, all of the sources of information, uh, everyone recognizes Jonathan Edwards as most brilliant mind uh, who ever came from this country. Um, but Jonathan Edwards succeeded his grandfather in the church at Northampton. John, uh, Solomon Starter was in favor of the halfway covenant. Jonathan Edwards was opposed to it. It's important for us to realize that in that Northampton church, four out of five people in that church were non-communicant members, meaning that they had been baptized, but they never made a profession of faith. So it should come as no surprise that when the church decided whether to keep Jonathan Edwards as their pastor or not, uh, the margin to fire him was 10 to 1 in favor of firing him. So, Halfway, half-heartedness produces spiritual complacency. We've seen it in our own country in the early days of its formation. We see it all around us now. We wonder, you know, how long has this been around? Well, we could go all the way back, but we're only going to go back as far as the second chapter of Judges and uh, see what was happening there that made them spiritually complacent. Uh, God told them to drive out all the inhabitants of Canaan. And so they set out on that mission, and there were uh, many cities that they conquered, and they did drive the inhabitants out in uh, many parts of the land, but not all. They got to the point where they decided, you know, uh, this is pretty much good enough, don't you think? Uh, we, we can live with this. And so they figured that partial obedience uh, should be considered to be full obedience. You know, surely God would accept what they had done so far as, you know, good job, well done. Um, you've got my blessings on that. But God did not consider half-hearted obedience 
to be full obedience. And so he pronounced consequences upon the people. And when the people hear the consequences, they are overcome with grief and they start weeping out loud. Now I want us to see what those consequences are. If you'll turn with me, uh, if you have your own Bibles, so we're in Judges chapter 2. If you'd like to follow along in uh, the Pew Bible, there should be one under your chair or the chair in front of you. Uh, turn to page 201, page 201, uh, Judges chapter 2, and uh, I'd like for us to read verses 1 through 14. Judges chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord, uh, again, uh, when we see the angel of the Lord, this is an indication of a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ himself. So it's not, you know, your, your regular angel. Uh, this is the Lord himself. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochum, which means weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joseph, I mean Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods and the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. 
and they were in terrible distress. Sad words, aren't they? (laughs) But the consequences are appropriate. The people didn't want to finish the job of driving the Canaanites out. Apparently, they thought that God would accept partial obedience in place of full obedience. They discovered otherwise. So basically, here's what God says. You like idols? You think you can live with idolatry? Fine. Have it your way. There is no more severe consequence than that of God letting you have your own way. Romans chapter 1 speaks to this. Where the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is exactly what the people of God and Israel did in the days of the judges. And now, hundreds of years later, the Apostle Paul is talking about the same kind of thing that's going on in in the the culture where he lives, exchanging Uh, the glory of the immortal God for basically idols. And let's see what happens here. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Israel did not want to fully conquer their enemies. And even though God had guaranteed victory for his people, this is important to understand. Uh, God had guaranteed, if you go out here and drive the people out of this land, you will be successful in this mission. But they were reluctant. Not sure they wanted to go through with this. They were surely tired and Uh, thought that maybe they could just learn to get along with their enemies uh, rather than uh, push them out as God had uh, commanded them. And now, as a consequence for not being obedient, uh, they would get to the place where instead of being guaranteed victory, they're going to be guaranteed defeat. No wonder they lifted up their voices and started weeping. So at this point, uh, there's a a whole slew of questions that come to mind. Uh, One, how did the people of Israel go from being bold and courageous under Joshua to being apathetic and complacent after that generation died out? What caused the people of Israel to trade God in on what appeared to be to them a flashier model? What causes one generation to reject God or the God of their fathers in favor of the values of their current culture? What can be done to guard ourselves and our children against spiritual complacency? If we become spiritually complacent, what can we do to overcome it? 
Well, for the sake of brevity and simplicity, I've reduced all these questions down to two. Uh, number one, uh, what causes spiritual complacency? And number two, what's a good strategy for overcoming it? So uh, let's begin with this question. What causes spiritual complacency? What does cause spiritual complacency among us today? Actually, it's the same things that cause the Israelites to become spiritually complacent. There may be any number of things that cause spiritual complacency, but I'm going to identify just three. Uh, number one, uh, failing to give God exclusive lordship over your life will bring spiritual complacency. Uh, back in the 80s, there was a doctrine that was popular that uh, swept through the evangelical world. Uh, the basic idea of this teaching was that you could receive Christ as Savior without receiving him as Lord. It was kind of a halfway covenant uh, with, with, with the Lord. Uh, so these, uh, uh, the, the proliferators of this doctrine were, were presenting uh, that uh, they were saying you can be saved, you can know that you've got your ticket punch for heaven. Uh, all you have to do is accept that free gift, and there are no strings attached. Uh, you're only accepting Jesus as Savior, not as Lord. You can continue to re remain in charge of your own life. And then to combat that, some of you uh, may have seen where there's a, a picture of a chair, and uh, you know, you're sitting on the chair or the throne, and uh, you need to make you know, Jesus Lord of your life. Uh, let me tell you, when you receive Christ, you receive Christ for who he is. He is Savior and Lord. You receive him for what he is or not at all. Well, after Joshua led the people in some victor uh, victorious assaults in the land of Canaan, God came to him and said, Joshua, uh, you're getting old and advanced in years, and very much of the land remains to be possessed. And then through Joshua, God gave orders to each of the tribes to go out and take their territory from the Canaanites. So the territories had already been, been divided up by tribes. They had their assignments. They knew exactly where they were supposed to go. Uh, but the, 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 this first generation, uh, the ones who came across the Jordan River, and uh, leveled Jericho, uh, that generation, uh, did push out a lot of the Canaanites, but they still left uh, pockets that uh, were untouched. And uh, then the second generation came along, and you think, well, they'll pick up where the first generation left off and go ahead and finish the job, but they didn't do that. Uh, they got to the point where they said, uh, why, why bother? Uh, these Canaanites aren't so bad. You know, we can learn to get along with them. I want you to think about this allegorically just for a moment. Um, when we think about doing spiritual warfare within our own soul and there is sin there uh, that is in our hearts and uh, we deal with some sins but not all of them and you think, well, I'll just make... Some of these sins, they got to go. But some of these other sins, uh, they're not wild tigers and lions. They're more like poodles, you know. So I'll just keep them here uh, to be my pets 
and I'll learn to get along with those. So uh, picture it allegorically for a moment, and it helps us to understand the principles of, of what we are being presented here. But when the, the second generation, uh, anyway, uh, they were becoming like the Canaanites who are around them. They were comfortable with many gods. You know, they had their god, but they also had their gods. You understand what I'm trying to say to you here? Now, people in every generation think, oh, yeah, I can recognize uh, God. I can recognize uh, Christ as, as my Savior and uh, my, my Lord uh, for the most part. Uh, but there are other idols that I serve. We just don't call them that. Uh, you know, evidently, the uh, Israelites didn't mind asking God to share his role as Lord with idols. You know, the greatest threat to Christianity today is not some other religion. It's not even atheism. It's that we ask God to coexist with our idols. So, what else besides failing to give exclusive lordship of your life to God causes spiritual complacency? Uh, I think you'll resonate with this one. Boredom with God. Where do you get that? In verse 10, uh, it speaks of the second generation that they neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Does that mean that they didn't understand what their parents had done when they came from uh, the, the Sinai Desert through the swollen waters of the uh, flooded Jordan River and then uh, through that marvelous uh, act of uh, obedience to the Lord, marching around the city of Jericho those six times and then, then the seventh time blowing the trumpets and the walls fall down? Did, did they not know any of that? Well, yeah, they'd heard the stories. They had heard all of this stuff. They, they were familiar with it. They were familiar, but they remain unimpacted. You know, the same kind of thing can happen to us today. We can be familiar with the stories in the Bible, and as we get into Judges, we're going to find some fascinating stories that a lot of us here are not familiar with. Some of them we are familiar with. But just getting knowledge, being familiar with what the Bible says, that's good. But that's not enough. It has to impact us. We have to be aware that there is an awesome God whom we serve. All these other idols who are uh, pretenders to the throne are nothing more than that. They are pretenders. We serve an awesome God. Never lose sight of who he really is. We should never lose the wonder of the virgin birth when God became man and dwelt among us and never lose our wonder for our Savior and our Lord, our representative, our second Adam, who represented us perfectly. He never sinned, not even one time. Never lose sight of the awesomeness of that. And then when he laid down his life for our sakes so that he could take the punishment as our representative. He take the punishment, the judgment of God. He absorbed it all 
took it to the grave with him, and then resurrected on the third day to the glory of God, never lose sight of the awesomeness of Christ. But the second generation had done exactly that. And so when they would hear stories, stories about the crossing over of the Jordan when the waters parted and they walked through on dry land, their parents did this. And their, their parents were the ones who marched around the city of Jericho and all of these marvelous stories. And then, you know, when they would be reminded of, of those stories, instead of their jaws dropping and saying, what an awesome God, they would do something sort of like this. <sighs> uh, yeah, I've heard that before. Now, Eric Fromm put it like this, hate is not the opposite of love. Apathy is. To be complacent in the face of Calvary is the greatest possible rejection of God. All right, what else causes spiritual complacency besides failing to give God exclusive lordship over your life and being bored with him? It's uh, taking God's blessings for granted. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Uh, God issued a warning to his people that still speaks to us today. Uh, especially to us, I think, in, in the affluent West. Uh, I, I want you to hear what he says. Um, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, okay, listen carefully, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And uh, this is virtually repeated again two chapters later. So God wants his people to really let this sink in. But the, the, the great danger for the second generation of judges and for us today is that the enjoyment of God's blessings make us blessing-centered rather than God-centered. All right. Failing to give God exclusive leadership or exclusive lordship of your life, boredom with God, taking God's blessings for granted, these are the things that cause spiritual complacency. So now that we know what causes spiritual complacency, is there anything in the story that we've read from Judges 2 that tells us how to overcome spiritual complacency so what is the strategy for overcoming spiritual complacency it's it's not that you you know look through the the bible and you see a heading there that says um, 
warnings against spiritual complacency. Here's how people become spiritually complacent. You're not going to see that. that it's just something that's revealed as you study it. Nor will you find a heading there that says, uh, a strategy for overcoming spiritual complacency. Uh, you, you read the scripture and, and you get some clues. So um, I'm just going to offer you two clues, probably more. But uh, again, of the interest of uh, clarity and brevity uh, and simplicity, uh, we're just going to consider two. Uh, first of all, spiritual complacency loses its grip when you consider the spiritual vitality of not just yourself, but of others. I want us to take a closer look at verse 7 of chapter 2. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. And that's, oh, that's the end. All right. Um, here's what the verse says. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Now, here's what I want us to see. As, as long as two things happen, the people served the Lord. Uh, first, they, they served the Lord as long as Joshua was there to keep prodding them to serve the Lord. Uh, that is, they had a spiritual leader who was out front encouraging them to serve the Lord, and they followed his leadership. And second, they kept serving the Lord as long as the great miracles of the past kept motivating them. You know, when they are reminded of what God did for them and didn't let go with that, uh, th those were the factors, uh, as, as well as listening to uh, their, their leaders. Um, those were the two factors that disappeared in the next generation. When they forgot the Lord, they stopped listening, stopped remembering. And by the way, do you realize that worshiping and serving the Lord are not just things that you do for your own benefit? You know, a lot of times we come to church or to a Bible study or um, become engaged in some serving, uh, serving project and we think, uh, well, you know, what's in this for me? Am I going to benefit from it? I, I hope that, that you realize that your presence here is not only for your sake. Your presence here is a source of encouragement for the people next to you on the other side of the room and for the guy standing up here. When you engage in worship and in serving, you're saying it's not all about me. It's not about what I can get. It's about what contribution can I make to the kingdom of God that will benefit other people around me or even people that I never even meet or see. And this reminds me of something else we need to learn from our study and judges. Here's the, the second clue is uh, you, you can't consistently Make the most godly decisions in your present life until you consciously 
make those decisions for the next generation, not your own. Okay? So, you know, we're not... The, the, the mindset the Bible wants us to have is that we think others before we think about ourselves. And in Romans 14, verse 7, uh, Paul again says what Judges is saying, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. People bring all different levels of maturity into the mix. Now, some of us who have known the Lord for many years understand the deep truths of Scripture better than some others. And uh, for those of you who are in this category, we need the spiritual depth and maturity that, that you bring to the table. Uh, for some, the light has just recently come on for you. You knew that God exists, but now you're aware that God exists in you, and he's changing your life. And we can see that. And when we do, that's an encouragement to everybody who's been around for many more years to see new life come up. You know, the new birth is absolutely fascinating. You can't cause this to happen. You can't say, follow these five simple steps and you'll be born again. It is an act of God. And to see that happen in people, wow. When someone's born of God, it brings excitement and energy and hope to everyone in the body of Christ. So we need each other. None of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. The psalmist uh, essentially says the same thing. Let me read you a section from Psalm 78. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now, we're not here just for ourselves. We're also here for those who have yet to be born physically and spiritually. Now, in the verses that we've been uh, considering, um, I want to look at uh, one more that we have not read yet. Uh, see, here it is. Uh, verse 21 of chapter 2. Uh, God says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So in these verses, we learn that God has left those nations that Israel uh, did not drive out. He, he left those nations there to test the Israelites 
who were inexperienced in battle. So God wanted a group of people who knew how to trust him in battle, people who would aggressively pursue his agenda. It's not that God's primary purpose here was to you know, create a, uh, you know, a, a Navy SEALs or Army Rangers type of um, uh, you know, fighting force, uh, even though it did include that. But really what God was after is he wanted people to trust him. He wanted people to take him at his word. He wanted people to believe in him. And that's the real battle, isn't it? The real battle is do we believe what God has said? And in our confessions earlier this morning, which were right on target, there is the acknowledgement that we have all failed to believe God in one way or another. And we do it on a regular basis. That's why we need to have a continuous input of his word into our lives. I mentioned a minute ago that God was wanted to develop people who would advance his agenda. What is God's agenda? Is it different from ours? Is God's agenda to make it through this life with as little difficulty as possible, to remain as comfortable as possible, and deal with as few problems as possible? Is that the agenda? It might be our agenda, but it's not God's. What is God's agenda? It's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God has placed his gospel within us to change us so that we might also be agents of change in the lives of others who are around us and uh, something that many of you already know, the process of, of sharing the gospel with others, evangelism, discipling, that's not just hard work, it is war. Because you are battling against spiritual darkness in the lives of other people. So, uh, you know, submitting to the Lord or, or the Lordship of Christ is also spiritual warfare. It's also a battle because our flesh is so, so strong. And, uh, you know, really, uh, that reveals a second clue for a strategy for overcoming spiritual complacency. Uh, it's learning how to trust God in battle. So, again, are we in a battle? Are you in a battle? Somewhere along the line, the battle is going to be something like this. Did God really say? The first thing that Satan said to the woman in the garden. It's basically what the voices of darkness said to the second generation of Israelites in Canaan, did God really say drive out all the inhabitants? Did he really say that? You know, our enemy is not some other nation, another army, 
we war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let me ask you this. Have, have you ever wondered that when you became a Christian, when you became a follower of Christ, that God didn't just yank all of that lower nature out of you? Why didn't he take our sin nature away? If, if he wanted us to be obedient and make him Lord of every area of our lives and, and, and uh, you know, follow him exactly, perfectly, why didn't he take our sin nature away? Ever wonder that? Well, you might also wonder why there are so many areas of weakness in your life and you have such difficult problems and obstacles to overcome. So, uh, is there any answer for us here? I think at least a partial answer is found in this section of the book of Judges. You see, the, the Lord uses the, the difficulties, the obstacles in our lives to teach us how to wage spiritual warfare. He wants to shake us out of our apathy and teach us to trust him. That's what he was doing with his people in Canaan and the book of Judges. That's what he's doing with us. That's why he leaves that lower nature there to teach us to, to trust him. We learn to trust when we struggle, when we go through battles. He wants to shake us out of our apathy and teach us to trust him. And it's only when the enemy has run all over us and our resources are gone, we really develop a teachable spirit which is exactly where the people of Israel were in the second chapter of the book of Judges. They lift up their voices and weep. They are filled with regret. And God said, I'm not going to drive these nations out before you. You disobeyed me. And we might think that, well, that's it. God has just abandoned his people. He's had it. But then we see what God does. He shows mercy in a couple of different ways. First of all, it says right there in the book of Judges that God sent judges. <laughs> that meant that he sent leaders uh, who would help them. And uh, God helped his people in other ways, particular, particularly in the way we've just described by teaching them how to do battle, how to trust him. That's the real battle. Now, the Bible consists of two covenants. The old covenant is about mercy, and the New Testament is about judgment. You hear what I said? Do you agree with that? Probably shaking your head, oh, no, no, no. The Old Testament is judgment and the New Testament is mercy. I want to show you the mercy that's here in Judges. The people who had turned their backs on God, bored with God, disenfranchised with him, spiritually apathetic. You know, God sends help. That's mercy. 
And you know what God does in the New Testament? It's really all about judgment. It's about the one perfect man, the God-man, who came who had no spot or blemish on him or in him anywhere. But what he does is he comes in and sort of like a sponge absorbs all, all of the sins of his people into himself. And God treats Christ as though he were the embodiment of all of the sins of his people who had ever been committed and ever would commit. And that judgment was fierce. Well, the significance of this episode of history of God's people is this. If you don't get anything else out of today's uh, service, um, please know that we have an awesome God. And please know also that God is merciful to sinners. There's one other thing that I just have to add on here uh, that we've already talked about. It's never lose your sense of all. Never forget. And just a few moments we're going to take the bread and the cup it's in an unorthodox fashion usually we have the table and we have servers to bring the elements to us but nonetheless we have this memorial it's a memorial <laughs> because God does not want us to forget he doesn't want us to forget what Christ did for us when he gave his body and his blood for our sakes, nor does he want us to forget what awaits us in the future when all sins and sin nature has been removed and we will enjoy the fellowship of our gracious Lord and Savior forever. If you've never really understood the gospel and would like to, um, you can talk to me, you can talk to probably somebody nearby you. But may the seed take root and may it bring forth fruit in all of us. Let's pray together. Uh, our Father, we are amazed uh, when we pick up your word and we read stuff that uh, just seems like uh, a section of history that really has no relevance uh, to us in the context in which we live at, at all. But as we look more closely, we realize that there's essentially no difference between the people who lived thousands of years ago and how we live now. Uh, we, we tend to stray. Uh, we tend to Go, go along with the flow of the values of the current culture. Uh, we're happy to receive your blessings, but uh, to make you Lord of, of our lives, uh, the only Lord, um, we have difficulty with that. Uh, we are like 
those who have gone before us. But you were the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you are a God of mercy. And you have given us an agenda to bring the good news of your gospel, the message of mercy that God forgives sinners, the effects of the gospel that changes us from the inside out. Why you have chosen to entrust this treasure into earthen vessels such as us, we'll never know, but you did. We thank you for the privilege. May you be honored and glorified through our lives. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen.